Hey everybody, Ben Pakulski, recording another amazing episode of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast for you. Thank you so much for being here. Today I sit down with a great friend of mine, Killian Hamilton. Killian is a new friend and uh, someone you're going to want to pay attention to now and in the future. This guy's mind is an absolute gift to humanity. His ability to think on a deep level is second to very few people. And we had first a brilliant conversation here in my facility, and then we sat down today remotely and talked about programming and skill acquisition. Now, why do you care about that? Skill acquisition is, in my eyes, the missing link in having you feel empowered when you go into the gym, whether it be yourself or your clients. Sometimes working out can feel disempowering because you're just like, I'm not sure if this feels good. I don't really like this. I don't really feel like I'm getting a reward for the amount of work that I'm putting in. And the missing link then is not hard work. It's skill acquisition. I've been the one talking about this and shouting from the, the mountaintops for the last 10 years, but there's never been anyone who sat down and actually created a quantified course. And Killian has done that. And I invited him on today to talk about what he's learned in creating this course and ultimately how to help you and me and all of our clients um, acquire a skill, whether that be in the gym or outside the gym. There's still a very particular process that you should be going through to allow you to feel empowered, right? When we start something, let's say we start playing the piano, it's not going to be the most empowering thing. Sometimes it's a bit of a struggle. It's like you're, you're, you're pushing against something. And then once you hit it, once you feel just a little bit of empowerment, you get that hit of dopamine, and now you want to do it again and again and again, because now I feel good about this thing. Gosh, I feel really great. I did something really well today, celebrating those wins and moving toward the ultimate goal. So Kellen and I, as I say, sit down today to talk about programming. Um, so how to ultimately build skill acquisition into this programming process and why programming is probably the missing link for most people. Most people go in the gym and just guess and they don't build any progress into their workouts. And if you don't build progress into the workouts, progress doesn't happen by accident. So we're going to walk you through this very logical, intentional process of skill acquisition being the foundation for all things we do, and then maybe how to progress through the next four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, and 12 months, and ultimately how to intentionally build training progress into the program. So progress for you is an inevitability, and um, you're getting to where you want to go rather than guessing. And today's podcast is brought to you guys by Blue Blocks, my favorite blue blocking glasses, which I'm wearing right now. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see how awesome they are. And they block my eyes from blue lights. I'm sitting in front of a computer. And uh, if you ever watch me on the podcast, you'll laugh and I'll point this out. But my eyes get very dry and they get very tired because I'm staring at these blue lights. I'm squinting and I'm not able to keep my eyes open. And as soon as I put on blue blockers, my eyes just feel better. And Blue Blocks is the highest quality blue blocking lens that exists. They have special patented lenses, and the ones I'm wearing right now are called Smith, and I think they're pretty awesome, and I'm sure you will too. If you guys haven't already picked up a pair of Blue Blocks, head over to blueblocks.com and use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with 15% off, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash MUSCLE, and you will get 15% off. They ship worldwide. There's no cost, and they're the highest quality styles. They've got a ton of really cool stuff, and um, they've also uh, recently released a red light so an infrared light that you can shine on particular parts of your body this is a mobile red light to increase mitochondrial function decrease inflammation i shine it on my head i also shine it on my testicles my head is going to decrease brain inflammation my testicles is going to improve testosterone production maybe what the research is showing i'm like hey you know what i'll take a chance on that if it'll improve the energy production in those cells oftentimes the cells are better able to do what they want to do so without further ado for me 
Enjoy this podcast with Killian Hamilton. Don't forget to listen all the way to the end. And if you aren't already listening on Spotify, that's where I've started listening now. I think Spotify is an awesome place to listen to all your podcast needs. You can find the Muscle Intelligence Podcast on Spotify and listen to me on every one of your workouts. Have a great day, guys. I love you and enjoy the show. Killian Hamilton, my man, what's going on? Nothing much, man. How are you? I'm doing very well, buddy. I'm so grateful for you joining. We had an amazing conversation on the RX radio uh, podcast and that went live and people love that. And I'm so grateful to have you on to get you to talk about your zone of genius or maybe one of your many zones of genius and uh, skill acquisition and programming is the topic of today. And you've created a course on skill acquisition. And, you know, this speaks to my heart because for the last uh, probably 10 years, I've been the one screaming at people that skill acquisition is um, maybe the, the, the weak link or you know, prior to a couple of years ago, maybe it was a weak link in most people's uh, armor. And uh, I think it's the most important aspect of uh, progress that's being overlooked, right? If I don't have the skill, I can't, I can't scale. I can't ultimately scale volume or intensity or anything, at least not accurately. And um, so I'm super grateful for you being here to tell us all about scale acquisition. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ben. Um, I think it's really cool because if we were to look at my my interest in skill acquisition it comes from a lot of you know previous influence and, and two of those big influences are are yourself and Jordan Shallow and I think Shallow is pretty infamous at this point for for saying the way you do one thing is the way you do everything um, and I think in the in the hypertrophy and bodybuilding side bodybuilding side of things there's no one that does that does mastery more or with the continuity that you do it so in looking at both of you guys as I came up in this industry. For me, it was a it was a natural progression of moving from being a carpenter to moving into strength training and understanding that you know there is there's mastery in all motor unit recruitment, and we see this in the trades, we see this in art, we see this in music, and to think that everyone else who uses their hands on a fine and gross motor skill level uh, goes through stages of skill acquisition to get to the mastery that they achieve. We need to look at the weight room no differently because I think when we look at even strength and especially in bodybuilding. We're looking at people who are searching from day one for mastery of a given task. Man, that's so interesting. So most people just go in and do the task, right? They don't think about the the doing the task. They just do the task. And then so I'm the one coming along like 10 years ago and going, hey, great, you're doing the task. That's a great place to start. That's very beginner level. Now let's start thinking about how you do the task, right? And then now then my progression from there is once you've thought about doing the task, now you have to embody the task. And that's ultimately this idea of maybe unconscious competence, where first it goes from, from conscious incompetence, like or maybe unconscious incompetence, where I don't know what I'm, uh, what I don't know, and then progressing through that kind of quadrants uh, of understanding what I'm doing and then progressing to doing it uh, most effectively. And um, that's hopefully where everyone should be striving to uh, sit or exist, I think. When you're trying to get good at something, when you want to build a body, when you want to get really strong, my belief is unconscious competence is a necessity. You agree on that? A hundred percent. And I think that's why, like we look at the Fitz-Fosman model, that's autonomy, right? Autonomy is unconscious competence in a task. My ability to sit down and with a low neurological workload, train a given motor unit task without having to think about it. Yeah. So if I'm incorrect in saying this, uh, obviously correct me. It sounds like this course you've developed is literally... Uh, expediting the process through this these four quadrants of uh, progressing toward autonomy. 100%. Like the goal is that you as a coach leaving the course 
can implement skill acquisition in programming and in communication in an autonomous fashion. And the goal would be you've expedited the process for client or athlete to move to an autonomous uh, position of execution in their given sport or task. Man, it gets me so excited. Like literally, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping here to think about this happening because, you know, I go through my process in my own head. Like we, I, you know, before we started the call, we started talking about programming um, and I write everyone's initial program with this in mind. Like, what is the best approach? And obviously that's a way overgeneralized statement, but what's the best approach for an average person, let's say, to improve skill across the board? And then acknowledging also that the skill of the squat may be completely different than the skill of a bench press based on mechanics, based on, on history, based on all these factors. Um, so it gets me really excited to think of like someone's actually put more thought into this than me. So uh, start walking us down the path of, you know, Betty Sue walks into the gym and, and Frankie Bob walks into the gym and they're like, hey, Killian, I'd like to be a professional bodybuilder or I'd like to be a powerlifter or I'd like to be an Olympic athlete, Olympic lifter. Um, what does it look like to begin? So I think the first stage we go through in skill acquisition and the way that conversation really derives itself and translates to the weight room is understanding there needs to be a level of cognition. When we approach... So when you say cognition is like awareness? Like right. a, yeah, a level of awareness. Now we can bring... We can bring levels of awareness through knowledge, right? We we uh, we delineate ignorance through knowledge. The more we understand something, the more aware we of are of what it is. And then, secondly, uh, perception of it, being exposed to it in a gradient fashion, in which we can gain a better perception to what we're experiencing. So that would be like the schema theory, right? It, identifying schemas is a way to get rid of anxiety. It's a way to build confidence. It's a way to build uh, adhereness and awareness to um, uncommon situations. So I think. Can you describe what that is? Because I wouldn't assume the listener would know. Oh, yeah. So for sure. Um, so understanding like a schema theory is understanding a way to assess, understand, react, and adapt to any given situation you're put in based on a level of cognition and a level of perception to uh, previous like scenarios. So if I were to see a hot stove, which I experienced once in my life, I had. I had one side of the schema. I understood that a stove was hot because things were removed from the stove and they were cooked. But I had never felt what the heat on a stove was like. So I only had understandings of other things that may have been hot in the past. The sun, the pavement, bath water. So in order for me to understand the stove was dangerous, I needed to put my hand on the stove. Now, when I'm in positions of a heat source, I have a better schema theory around how to understand and adapt to that. If I see a flame, a fireplace, a burner is on, I now have the cognition of what heat is and what it does. And I have the perception of having felt heat to an extreme degree. Got it. So with respect to scale acquisition, as it applies to exercise specifically, because obviously it can apply to anything, um, people need to start again. This is, this is the foundation of everything, which is why I've become such an advocate of you know, consciousness, conscious training, mindful training is like, I just need to bring you into this space. Mm -hmm. I need to bring you into your body. And so many people exist outside of their body, right? Or maybe they exist in, the, in their head, but they can't feel their body. They can't connect with their body. So step one in uh, making people, uh, is making people aware. And let's walk us down that path. Yeah. So the first step in, in awareness or cognition would be, if we were to look at the gym, is mobility, right? It's when we look at mobilizing to an efficient and expedient manner, it's understanding that we're entering, entering into unstable positions neurologically, not changing physical properties of, say, muscle fiber. So understanding that I want someone to gain that awareness of end ranges, 
by putting them into a safe enough position that they can neurologically open that window or that stop gap to that range, show shortened or lengthened ranges. And this is where we'll see a lot of mobility or like you practice yoga and it's incredible for finding and establishing end ranges in a safe manner in a, in a room that is calming where the lights are down, where you're not assessing risk constantly and then adapting those new end ranges from a mobility standpoint to greater and greater stability. And stability is simply a perturbation to a position or movement. Perturbation being a distal challenge to a proximal level of stability. Proximity being a joint or midline with what we would call like a proximal location. Yeah, one of the things that I really, that drew me to yoga will say is um, getting into uncomfortable positions and you talk end ranges and obviously having to relax into it, but also this bridging the gap into stability because now I'm so focused on having to breathe into it, stay there, become more stable and now I'm becoming centered in my breath. So I'm becoming centered in my diaphragm. And I found the um, rate of improvement to almost all of the exercise I did in the gym was surprisingly fast. And, you know, that came from upper body, lower body, uh, all of, you know, what we'll call the hubs of stability just started to seem a lot more solid and a lot more, um, reliable, right? There was less less unpredictability there. I could just ultimately take what I did, what I applied in yoga and apply it immediately into training. And that sounds counterintuitive, but based on what you're saying, it sounds like it's almost a perfect fit. Yeah, and I think that's really the, the first step in cognition, right? Or into skill acquisition in the weight room is is getting into unstable or uncomfortable positions, staying there long enough that you can actually create an adaptation to the position, and then creating a challenge to that position being stability or a perturbation of movement, creating a greater and greater distal challenge or range of motion to something would be a distal challenge away from proximal stability. And what that allows you to do is build a capacity. So in that cognitive phase, we're building an unloaded capacity to end range. This is something that anybody can recover from at a really exponential rate. Absolute load will always be absolute load. I think there's a famous quote, 200 pounds is always 200 pounds. And, and that's very much true. And that's something that at some points are going to have uh, detrimental effects on recovery, whereas perturbations or distal challenges to proximal stability is something that we can in, engage in and recover from at a high frequency. Very cool. So I think that in of itself, um, within what we just talked about in the first five minutes, is a huge skill, like a huge component of, because you mentioned mobility, and so we certainly don't want to breeze over that because that needs to be walked through. Then you mentioned bridging the gap into stability. So just because I have mobility obviously doesn't mean I have stability. And most people will associate mobility and flexibility. So I'd like to differentiate there. Uh, and I'd also just like to go down the path of well, what does it look like to start scaling mobility? Do you have a suggested uh, progress um, method or is it just like, hey, go there and spend time there? Yeah, so I think uh, when we look to scale mobility, um, I would always link it directly to stability. So I think oftentimes we remove the idea of test retest that I think a lot of us have learned from the countless certifications we've probably all taken and, and, and schools we've been to. Um, but in scaling mobility, it's only as relevant as the stability we can apply to it. If I can get my hand over my head unloaded, I have the flexibility to get up here, but I can't operate, operate in or understand my positions overhead. That's not something I can stabilize, therefore not something that I can train. So when looking to improve mobility, it can't be done in isolation. It should be tied to um, relative turn and stability or perturbations to movement. If someone's 
someone has, you know, base level uh, hip or hip flexibility at the joint, they have relative levels of mobility in the glute through functions of the hip. They can operate in internal, external rotation, adduction, abduction. Then a relative baseline test and stability for them might be a single leg glute bridge, something that works in lower levels of extension at the hip, greater levels of flexion, and is for the most part relatively supported from a larger base of support. Now they can scale greater and greater degrees of mobility at the hip from you know, ranges of motion in a 90-90 to gait cycle in a walking lunge or sprinter pose or runner's lunge. And they can start to scale those with gradients and extension at the hip from single leg glute bridge to RD, like single leg RDL to hip airplane is a very common progression. I think we see more often than not nowadays. How much do you consider um, neuromuscular orchestration from a perspective of patterns? So, um, you know, obviously we know the body moves in patterns, but, you know, some people will, will kind of push back on these things, meaning you can reestablish a pattern by consciously reestablishing a pattern, but you may also be able to reestablish a pattern by removing the barrier to the pattern. In this case, hey, you lack mobility here. If I just improve the mobility, it may actually change the sequencing um, what approach would you suggest people take? So given context for the listener, if, um, if I notice that I, I'm doing a, a movement and it looks relatively sloppy, it doesn't feel very stable, things aren't, don't seem to be very well coordinated, obviously there, there's a few levels of, of approach, right? I can do things over and over again. I can do it um, slowly and, and try to change the way I do it, or maybe even I could um, you know, mobilize first in some way that loosens up some joint range that then changes the mechanics in of itself. And, and maybe all of those exist, but I'd love to have you walk through, you know, someone who's, you know, hey, I, I, maybe I have the requisite mobility here, but uh, I'm not necessarily doing this thing correctly, or at least what I would judge or my trainer may judge us correctly. Yeah. And I think this is where we actually start to see uh, the format of skill acquisition over the course of a session or over the course of, say, a week or block of training be implemented isn't exactly what you're saying here is understanding that if we do have requisite mobility, but what we're lacking is stability, uh, either stability um, in positions or strength in end ranges, what we'd want to do is we would want to find autonomous work thereafter to supplement that. So if I had, if we talk about hip extension, which is a pretty common thing we see poor positions adopted into hip extension, uh, hip hinge would be a better term for most people or deadlifting. See a lot of hip hinging and deadlifting movements um, fall heavily into a more anterior path, more lumbar flexion or thoracic flexion. Well, what we would want to do is we would want to find um, a highly detailed gradient scale or exposure to extension at the hip where we're creating these perturbations or distal challenges. Now, this could come from external stabilization, and it can even come from uh, finding isometric positions in which we want to get into and stabilizing from there. So we could see someone who does have poor movement patterning in a hinge, they could uh, mobilize glute, they could mobilize the lat, they could do whatever requisite mobility provides a like or greater stimulus to that person. So training age is gonna greatly affect the mobility chosen. Someone who works at a desk all day, maybe a general population clientele, probably won't need the, you know, the foam roller or the steel pipe to the low back to get them to move better. You know, they might need, you know, a runner's lunge. They may need to lay in child's pose and tell you about their day for five minutes and kind of shed the weight of the day. And that might be the mobility requisite for them. So we're almost looking for like an autonomic um, volume switch, right? An autonomic dimmer switch. Exactly. We're just trying to do that. And that's understanding 
you know, where is the stimulus coming from this person and where they're prepared? Like you and I get to deal with such a, a large population of clientele and of, and of friends knowing their backgrounds. I know that for me to adopt to end ranges and unstable positions, for yourself to adopt to end, range, end ranges and unstable positions, it's going to require a far greater stimulus than, say, my mom. You know, my mom might just need to get into a child's pose. She might just need to, you know, go for a five minute walk, take greater stride lengths, you know, consciously breathe and stop thinking about her day, you know, throw sand on. And from your perspective, is that um, tissue quality um, primary? What's the biggest influence? Tissue quality? Is it autonomic arousal? Is it health of the system? Is it uh, accumulation of, um, you know, some type of fibrotic tissue? Like, what are all the variables that contribute there? Because I always want to try to quantify that, right? Because my brain goes to, I would like to return to the mobility and stability that I had when I was 16, 18 years old. And like, how do we then get, start getting rid of all of this, all of these variables, right? So it's it's the meditation, it's the yoga, it's, it's maybe the fibrotic, getting rid of the fibrotic tissue and the inflammation. I think, I think that's the thing is we start to look at stress and allostatic load as aggregate, right? And we start to understand the inputs people are putting into their system. And, and that's where taking a history of your client or taking a history of an athlete and looking externally versus internally at the weight room when assessing what is necessary in a cognitive phase to begin to learn a new task, right? And for most people, it's going to take a lot of variables to start to zero in on it. We just have to find the easiest ones to control or the ones in which we get the greatest buy-in to control. So I think like an autonomic attenuation is the first thing that we look at. I think when we look at training age and sport of athlete, tissue tolerance and tissue quality becomes largely responsible as well. Yeah. Um, and then underlying you know health considerations so like dietary can be huge right inflammatory diets timing of eating supplementation and all those things but i think first and foremost it's autonomic it goes from you know what is this capacity what is this person's capacity for stress in a physical and more often neurological sense so do you build that into your course or do you build that into programs like something i've started doing that's very um you know unusual or atypical is like I'm very conscious of accessing both extremes of the autonomic nervous system. Like I'm trying to get super sympathetic, but I'm also trying to get super parasympathetic before. So workouts, I don't know if we did this when you're here, but workouts will often start with like, you know, some, some bouncing and then which moves into shaking, which then moves into just almost like ecstatic movement. Sometimes I use some clubs and I'll just kind of like move things around, just trying to loosen up and remove all the tone from places that exist in my body. So it's not stretching per se, but it's it's mobilizing actively. And my brain goes to like, I'm trying to alleviate tension. I'm trying to um, uh, increase blood flow. I'm trying to increase viscosity at the joints. I'm trying to just, I'm, I'm literally picturing increasing the gaps, the spaces between joints and allowing things to flow there. It's been a pretty good, big difference maker in my ability to access uh, end range of stability. Yeah, and I think I think that's something that should be included and uh, taken into account when looking at athletes with greater training ages and more uh, and greater sports history in, in contact. What are you trying to say, man? Trying to say that you know you're a high level athlete. You're trying to call me an old bastard? Is that what this is? No, 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 no. <laughs> Just trying to fire up a little. But no, I think like we see that in track and field, right? We see that in explosive athletes. Like they will do a lot of. A lot of uh, warm up, like you said, tonally, right? Like they'll bounce, they'll do A skips, B skips, hops, leg swings. They move dynamically, but we also look at the tissue quality of that athlete. And even in ligament and tendon, they're probably primed 
for that, you know, inherent quote unquote bounce. Right. And for yourself, for yourself, when you enter a gym, regardless of, of what's actually going on, you know, front of mind and consciously, you've spent years and years in a gym. I've spent years and years in a gym. Like I know when I put track spikes on, or I know when I pick up a barbell, my intention and my mindset, regardless of if it's front of mind, changes completely. And I think when we look at these autonomic and even, you know, tonal kind of warmups for athletes, it comes from people who we start to disassociate a level of tension that could be unconscious in the athlete. And I think it pays, I think it pays more of a benefit to people like yourself and, you know, even people like myself than it would to the everyday person. I think that everyday person is coming in with, with outside stress that will probably be decreased in 10 minutes of talking about their favorite TV show. And that could literally be the mobility for that person or putting on, putting on a playlist they like, like something I do in the cognitive phase of training, even for myself. And this kind of went viral during our lockdown was the music I listened to when I train or the music I listen to when I move through things that are more proprioceptive. Like I'm not throwing, you know, Metallica on for the hip airplane. It's not necessary. I don't need to become hyped. You know what I mean? To do shoulder dislocates. Like I need to get into a position where I feel safe, where I feel relaxed, where my breathing is going to. I'm picturing you like busting out some Enya. Yeah. That's the mood, man. Like I'll put the Maxwell on, you know, the Joe to see the genuine, whatever it might take for me to become relaxed in these positions. But that's all an environmental constraint and input in the system. And those, those things in cognition need to be accounted for. Hey, it's Ben. And I want to quickly tell you a story about one of the greatest resources I found on the internet. And I've been using it as far back as 2007 when it was first introduced to me. Back then it was called the Philosopher's Notes. And what it was was this brilliant guy started reading books and decided instead of just allowing this information to pass through, he'd start creating six-page summary and a 10-page video and published it on YouTube at the time. And it was the most incredible resource because I could now, instead of having to read a book, and maybe not really love the book. I could check the book out to see if I loved it. And if I loved it, continue to obviously read the book. Or what I noticed was I was getting so much value from the five big ideas that he extrapolated from the book that oftentimes I didn't have to read the book. I got the five big ideas and I was like, gosh, this is amazing. I understand it next. So it really allowed me to accelerate my journey, my personal growth. It allowed me to dig deeper into topics that I love and maybe not dig so deep into other topics that I didn't love. And Philosopher's Notes has now evolved into Optimize.me, one of my greatest resources. And you guys may remember Brian Johnson, who was a guest in the podcast. I asked Brian to join me as a guest, knowing that he doesn't do a lot of interviews because he's a very private guy. He's a very family-oriented guy, very much like me. Uh, and we hit it off and he's become such a great friend. And I really want to support him, his business and his mission now and his future mission, when I'll tell, which I'll tell you guys about on future podcasts. So if you head over to optimize.me slash muscle, Brian and his amazing team at Optimize are gonna hook us up with 10% off. They're already ridiculously low price of $9.97 a month. And for the amount of information you're getting for $9 a month or $10 a month, whatever it equates to be, you're getting 600 different philosophers notes. You're getting hundreds of plus ones, which is how to up-level your life, how to give yourself an up-level plus one. And you're getting a, a huge number of mastery notes. So particular topics they choose and they talk to the experts and they give you the, the key items to optimize and master your life. So in weeks to come, I'm gonna be bringing you a summary of some of the books that I'm reading very much in this philosopher's notes format. 
Um, so hopefully I can provide some value for you, some perspective on some of my favorite books of all time. And maybe it'll, it'll encourage you to have uh, an opportunity to go over to optimize.me and check it out. I think it's a huge value add if you guys go, hey, Ben, you know, did you read this book? Do you like it? And I can bring you some information about what I garnered from a book. And if you like that format, you can head over to Optimize and get a very similar thing. Because as I said, I'm just borrowing this format. I'm going to pull my top five points out of each book that I'm reading and provide it for you here on the podcast once a week. And uh, I really encourage you to check it out. It's literally the greatest thing that helped me accelerate my journey. And here's another cool thing. What you guys don't know is I also join the Optimize Coach team. So I've actually paid to become a student of Brian for 300 days. Myself and about a thousand other coaches are going through this program. And he's giving us the best practices to, and ultimately a system and a process to follow every single day and every single week to continue to build over 300 days to become the greatest version of ourselves. And it's completely inspiring to be around people who want to thrive, who are doing the work, who are putting in the time and ultimately creating their greatest life. So head over to optimize.me slash muscle and get 10% off with the code muscle 10. You can get that off the monthly or off the incredibly low lifetime price as well. So I hope you all uh, check it out. Look forward to hearing from me about the greatest books I've read, and you can head over to uh, Optimize to check those out as well. Back to the show. So does the other, other end of spectrum hold true as well? Obviously, I don't have contextual um, experience. So I can think of a client right now whose muscle tone is uh, that of an of a overcooked noodle, right? And so they're coming in, they've got very little uh, tone. It's too very, very passive and very soft and almost to the point of, um, you know, passivity, right? It's almost to the point of like they can't do, they don't have enough muscle tone to generate enough, you know, movement for basic day-to-day tasks. So then would it look like something, hey, we're going to do something to, to tone up this thing. Like let's do something that's physically strenuous that allows you to uh, increase the ability to recruit the autonomic nervous system or recruit the central nervous system. Yeah, and that's where I would look at, that's where I would look at when we have this discussion of stability and base level strength, go that, you know, stability might be our our final our final stage that we really want to get to and and for some people that stage could be far away and we look at someone who doesn't have that muscle tone doesn't have that ability or capacity to kind of exert force right out of the gate maybe this is someone where we look at um base level or attenuated you know isometrics in their cognitive phase where we're finding positions that are more externally stabilized we're holding positions that we want to find later on like you kind of talked about these neuromuscular patterns and, and trading in light currencies. Well, if I want to exert force, you know, from, you know, a 90 degree position of knee flexion and hip flexion, and this person doesn't have that muscle tone or capacity to drive force right away, not even in stability, but in base level strength. Well, I'm going to put this person into a position where they're stabilized, that they can then begin to understand it in an isometric sense, how to overcome isometrics, right? And overcoming isometrics becomes an immense warm-up in people who don't have that capacity fresh out of the gate. And that's brilliant. I think every every person listening should acknowledge what just exists in there. If you didn't, rewind it, listen to it again. But just this idea of like, as a, as a coach, throwing, into, throwing someone into a complex neurological exercise that they don't know how to move through, that they don't know how to stabilize. And then ultimately moving is obviously incredibly more neurologically, cognitively complex than not moving. So taking out the movement variable and saying, hey, go to this position, which is effectively what you're able to do right now with control. So this is your end range mobility and stability um, you know, positions of, of that you're able to access. 
and stay there and then overcome the isometric, you know, pushing into the floor, pushing into the wall, pushing into some machine um, and ultimately turning up the volume knob on the, the central nervous system and saying, hey, you need to get stronger in this position. Um, there's, there's a ton of value in that. Yeah. And that's where that's where I looked to see, like we're talking a lot about cognitive right now, but I think to look at these phases in isolation over the course of a day is to not pay them the credit where the credit's due in the long term and to look at, um, you know, uh, like over a training block, over, you know, multiple cycles and even over the course of days is your autonomous work, your end of your workout on the previous day is truly your cognitive prep for the workout of the next day. Yeah, this is something I do a lot with baseball is baseball players who I know are going to throw, say, on a Friday. I will have the autonomous work that they do on, say, a Thursday. So the end of their workout, if we were to look at alphanumeric exercise selection, the C, D, and E class of their Thursday afternoon workout are actually exercises that are setting up cognitive positions for their throwing game the next day. If I've got a pitcher, I have a pitcher moving into front foot elevated split squat with a contralateral load suggesting rotation and I'm having him do a uh, face pull, rope face pull high, um, looking for you know a position of the scapular plane or scaption, external rotation at the shoulder, not retraction. And he's finding these, these end ranges. He's starting to kind of draw the circle around the straight line that is his pitching. So we're not, we're not innervating pitching mechanics to make him better. We're not tying the baseball to the cable machine, but in that autonomous work, he's finding end ranges of external rotation holding long isometric tempos in that position, strengthening the end range. Same goes for front foot elevated split squat. Now in the next day, when we put him in those positions, he has the cognition of understanding how to throw and the perception of how end ranges feel. He's now to acquire those positions at a greater rate. It's very interesting. And I think um, being cognizant, I love to have you talk about being cognizant of fatigue at that point, right? Because we're very aware of the reality that too much of that could take away from performance. Just the right amount could actually significantly increase performance. So are you using particular um, objective or subjective markers to uh, kind of rate where we should stop this stuff? Yeah, so what I look at is I look at this, it's an arbitrary rating scheme that I've given exercises based on modality. So the idea that the medium is the message that your modality that you choose, modality being the tool you utilize in the gym, brief understanding of modality being barbell, dumbbell, cable machine, and let's go hammer strength machine to just be, you know, a kind of common knowledge, a plate loaded machine. Now, when we look at these modalities, each modality is going to have an efficiency rating that drives it towards a certain percentage of intensity or rate of exertion. When we pick up a barbell, we understand that on any given set, we're probably getting at most five to eight reps of maximum muscle fiber recruitment if the intensity is within a range that allows for it. Well, with the barbell, the benefit is I get that muscle recruitment from rep one. So if I'm picking a barbell up in training, then I'm gonna be placing the barbell high in the workout, and I'm gonna be driving 75 to 100% intensity on the barbell. That's how I start to look at it. Understanding this, I would wanna place that barbell work either earlier on in a week of training, or at a day in which I'm starting to catch the crest of the allostatic load of the athlete. Now, I'm going to start to look at efficiency drop-off in exercise selection based on where I find those five to eight reps of maximum muscle fiber recruitment. But within that, I start to attenuate neurological fatigue based on external stability. 
So I'm going to go from barbell bilateral in which I can't allow for adaptation of my own limitations or movement to a dumbbell. A dumbbell is going to allow me to drive a greater time and distance solely based on the modality, which is the dumbbell. Well, now I'm going to look at probably training within 50 to 75% of my barbell in the same rep range. Well, I obviously now have to do more reps with the dumbbell than I'd have to do with the barbell because I'm accessing those eight reps later on in the set. So it's going to drop down in the exercise order. The cable machine is probably going to be, you know, 15 to 35% of what I could do with the dumbbell within the given range. Therefore, the dumb, the cable. So when you're saying those percentages, are you referring to load specifically or the amount of, of um, challenge to the nervous system? So we would go, I would go load and relative challenge to the nervous system would be the same. A one rep max deadlift would be 100 plus percent of your one rep max. And that challenge to the nervous system would equivalently should shut you down from hip hinge mechanics for the rest of that day. If you're pulling a max deadlift and then going on to do dumbbell RDL and prone hamstring curl and lat pull down, maybe that wasn't a one rep max deadlift or it probably didn't look very good. Okay. So, um, it's funny. I, I, I build this into every single workout, right? And, and I often teach progressing from, you know, most extra, sorry, most uh, internally stabilized toward most externally stabilized. So, context for the listener: a squat is very internally stabilized. It requires all of the muscle to be orchestrated to instability to move you through this locomotive pattern. And then you have a hack squat on the other end of that, which then obviously removes the necessity of stabilizing the spine or anything above the, the hip effectively. And that's gonna be a lot less neurologically taxing, therefore um, maybe more stimulus directly to a muscle, but less overall neurological fatigue. Yeah, so I would agree with that entirely. And that is something that is something I think in which we would take training age into account and going, you know, you or I can go barbell back squat to hack squat, we can drive relative exertion or intensity to create those adaptations where i think when we look at a newer training age lifter who say does a barbell back squat in a workout the relative intensity they would then look to drive on the hack squat regardless of external stability they probably don't have the bank account left to expend right when they get to that you know two rir one rir in the hack squat they've already expended that doing the barbell solely on how hard they had to work to do it well and internally stabilized. So what I would look to do in a program with a beginner lifter is like you had said to manage for fatigue, I would look at adaptive decay over the week. And I would look to scale these exercises and where they arrive at the workout to drive a higher frequency of like movement pattern over the week, but while attenuating these fatigue markers. So if day one, a exercise is back squat, day three b exercise is hack squat day four the c exercise is rear foot elevated split squat and then day five we have a front foot elevated split squat contralaterally loaded in the e class where we'd normally see core work because now the front foot elevated split squat with a contralateral load exists within knee flexion abduction external rotation but it exists within the core as a means of anti-rotation. Yep. Um, so I'm going to kind of pull this back a little bit. So give the uh, listeners context or something. Something that just came up in my mind, if we go back to the example we were speaking about, someone that comes in off the road has very low muscle tone, maybe low proprioceptive awareness, low coordination versus someone who maybe is hypertonic, a little bit overstimulated in the nervous system. So, you know, visually this one person is, is representative and this is just my comical representation of mine, more like an overcooked noodle. And this other other one is very rigid and very, very stiff. 
based on what you're saying, I feel like, and this may be a massive overgeneralization, but I love to discuss it. This person who is um, more uh, less ton- less toned, so hypotonic, um, may have a greater benefit from starting with something like a squat, ramping up because we're actually turning up the neurological um, demand significantly. Versus the other end, someone who comes in and has too much tone. May not, may not be able to access those positions. So we're looking for something that would maybe be on the other end. So maybe with them, we start with something like hammer strength press because um, then we actually get some muscular movement. We get some joint movement, maybe align the nervous system from that to actually loosen up and then progress into something that's more, or, or it's almost feel like it's a reverse order, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's exactly what I would look at. Like you said, with like the hypotonic versus hypertonic individuals, I would look at, scaling those weeks from an adaptation standpoint if i'm looking to get into new positions that i can't access um from a point of what i would do with the hypertonic person is actually have them start the week in a front foot elevated split squat yeah so like the reverse pattern yeah, exactly the reverse pattern the day one for hypertonic would be front foot elevated split squat day three might be the back squat because we've actually started to we've caught that allostatic load at its highest and what we've done to them is like you said we've attended we've turned the volume down Right. We provided environmental constraints to their ability to drive that sense of their nervous system. And then I've, then I've created my own wave of allostatic load midweek and said, here, here's where you get to output. And then I've backed them off again. So we see this undulation in where exercises arrive in the order. And if they arrive in cognitive, associative, autonomous, much to what you said, like we can prescribe it to hyper and hypotonic individuals as well. Super interesting. So now this adds a whole nother dimension to my programming understanding, right? So someone comes in and they're, um, you know, weak for all 10 tens of purpose. They're trying to build muscle. We need a greater neurological demand. We need to challenge the nervous system. So the nervous system becomes more effective, more efficient at contracting muscle. Whereas the other person is almost too much and we need to, we need to teach them to dial it down. Uh, that's an important awareness maybe for any coach or, or person listening. Um, so it doesn't even have to exist in one workout, right? Because many people try to make it happen within the confines of a single day. And that ends up being, you know, they, they're putting themselves in a position that are that compromising, ultimately leading down the path of injury and inflammation. So you're suggesting doing this over, over the, the span of at least a few days. I would especially, and especially when we look at uh, greater uptakes and skill happen at greater frequencies, the more frequent you can do something, the greater you're going to adapt to the skill. So I think in applying a high frequency approach and not trying to double down on a single day, we remove ourselves from the idea of like that uh, neurological overload, right? Like uh, I'm the biggest fan of Mike Menser. Like I think if there was one guy that's on been on my wall since I was a little kid before it was you, it was Mike Menser. And I love the idea of just sending it for two sets on four machines and going home. But I don't like the idea that you have to go home for 15 days before you can go back to the gym. Right. And that's not just physiological. It's very much neurological. So we look at a guy like Menser, we look at athletes who train at these low frequencies, um, and we see in a low-frequency athlete, we see a high-frequency allostatic load. So to provide context, I think everyone's seen kind of what sound waves look like, and yeah. that's a way to understand an allostatic load. It looks like a sound wave. There's crests and there's valleys. Now, if I train at a low frequency, I can adapt to high-frequency allostatic load because those periods of infrequent training allow for huge spikes in recovery. So we see an opposing wave of allostatic stress load and we see recovery and they operate at the same wavelength. So I can always compete at the same level. Now, if we want to take, get an uptake in skill and if we want to get an uptake in um, 
like newer or beginner physiological adaptation, a higher frequency is often a better approach. But in order to do that with a high frequency training schedule, I have a low uh, frequency allostatic load adaptation. So because of that, I'm not going to be able to see spikes in that performance over the course of each training session, but over the course of longer duration training blocks. And that's something where we see maybe the barbell squat shows up once a week, but we see knee flexion show up five times a week. So we're not testing and retesting the barbell squat one, two, three days a week because you need to train legs three days a week. We're seeing the barbell squat show up, the lunge pattern show up, the externally stabilized extension pattern show up. And then we're seeing every seven to 10 to 14 days that retest of our capacity for skill in the barbell movement. You know, what's really interesting, man, um, how success leaves clues. Uh, throughout my career, one of the things I was known for is training the same body part on consecutive days. Uh, and the first day would often just be playing. It would be 70% effort. And I, what I noticed was I got exponentially better workouts the following day. There was never eliciting fatigue. It was just like, neurological patterning, right? It was just like laying down the foundational patterns and the next day I'd come back and my workouts would be, you know, call it subjectively 30 to 40% better as far as my ability to get into ranges with stability and do work. And even as far as perceived effort going down. Um, so it sounds like that's what I was doing. Unconsciously, I kind of figured this out. Whereas someone on the other end who maybe is hypertonic or uh, hypotonic may want to do something similar, but um, a much more neurologically complex um, workout pre- hypertrophy workouts. So they could almost do two workouts on the same day or one the night before and one the next day um, with the intention of increasing the amount of tone. And that's, and that's what I would see from that autonomous work, the autonomous being CD and E level yeah. exercise, setting up the second days for somebody, like you said, who's hypotonic, the end of day one for them might be isometric uh, Bulgarian split squat. It could be isometric hamstring curl. The following day might then be the barbell squat or a hack squat or leg press in which we've started to overcome those isometrics at the end of, say, Monday, and they do a 6 p.m. session. Tuesday at 6 a.m., they do a barbell squat session. They've already found these isometric positions from which they've gained base levels of strength and stability under time because the greatest proponent to stability is time, right? It's spending time in those positions because you're resisting force. If I'm not exerting force, I'm resisting force. I need to be there long enough for forces to begin to impact me. And that's where we get lost in the stability conversation and in moving past is we're never anywhere long enough to adapt. Yeah. That, my, my kind of three phases of progression that I suggest in my courses is always TDL. Yeah. So it's always time, then distance, then load. And so that's where people usually miss. They go straight to load, right? And they miss the distance piece. And, and, and distance is a huge consideration when it comes to and you talked about that with perturbations when it comes to improving stability. Exactly. And, and I find when we look at a strength athlete and we look at, you know, even someone in the physique side of things in the bodybuilding world, we look at distance or perturbation of movement, like distal challenges to proximal stability. Those are where the greater adaptations lie for both categories. My ability to overcome load over a greater distance allows me when I move into competition as a strength athlete to find these very structured and and physics biased positions, like we see the huge arch in the bench press and powerlifting. Well, that's playing a physics game to the criteria of a sport, allowing that person to um, put on display adaptations to greater distances. If I only did closer at bench press or overhead press, 
and then got to lie down and take an extremely wide grip and bench press, well, I'm now navigating no longer stability and strength, but solely strength through a horizontal vector of force. When we see the opposite happen in bodybuilding, we see uh, posing increase, like the actual ability to execute on stage day, on show day in bodybuilders happen from greater distal challenges to proximal stability. My ability to control my midsection and operate through the length tension relationship of these joints allows me to you know, look bigger, look drier, have a tighter midsection, hit a vacuum if necessary, but that comes from distal challenges to proximal stability. Can I keep my midsection tight as I distally challenge my arm, as I distally challenge my hip through flexion? And that's going to that's gonna arrive on show day to, to create better posing. It's going to arrive on meet day to create better uh, strength adaptations. When you're programming a, a week, let's say, or even a longer phase, are you going in your mind, let's say oh, my objective is to improve my squat, yeah. Um, is there certain go-to exercises that you like? Or are you literally going joint by joint, person to person? Someone may have, you know, hip extension, maybe the limitation versus knee extension in somebody else. The, like how, how much is that influencing your decision-making on exercise selection? So what, what I want to do when I look at programming to say increase the lift like the squat is I would look at the my time to doing this at a high fre- frequency, my ability to get to someone barbell squatting two to three times a week that point will then be when I can make the squat stronger because I need the skill to do it more often. So what, what are the things that are holding somebody back? So what's usually holding someone back? And I look at, so this is where I look at the big three lifts, the squat, the bench, and the deadlift as perturbations to a challenge at the core. I look at the squat as an anti-rotational exercise because of the squat, the barbell squats relationship to the anterior or posterior oblique sling. Uh, people might know the like the Janda upper cross, lower cross, the idea of the left lat and the right hip or glute reacting to one another. We see rotational demand in the squat as oftentimes a challenge to people squatting. In the deadlift, it's very evident that it's flexion extension at the thoracic or lumbar spine is the limitation to deadlift. And in bench press, what's harder to see is it's actually an exercise of anti-lateral flexion or control through adduction and abduction at the shoulder. So our ability to anti-laterally flexible greatly uh, influence our ability to bench press more weight. But in terms of the squat, I would look at the squat being the driver of squatting more, but to underpin a barbell squat would be to look at exercises through the lens of anti-rotation first, because it's my ability to lessen the horsepower necessary to the midsection or to the core and allow the horsepower to generate towards the legs, right? I need to work in, uh, in parallel, not in series. So what I want to be able to do is go, if the demand to this person is going to be anti-rotation before it's ever quads and glutes, then how do I lock down anti-rotation as an uh, autonomous pursuit of this person? And how do I allow the associative to be the knee flexion extension? So, so walk me through that. Um, so a few things, there's a few like words that I want to come back to at the end of the podcast to define for the listener. Um, and, and so this autonomous um, one is one that I don't think is common. So why don't you walk us through that and then answer the question of how we would um, uh, autonomous versus associative and then walk us in the past of how we would start challenging rotation in your eyes or anti-rotation. Yeah. So I look at, so when we look at autonomous and associative, we look at associative to firstly be defined as task specific. So dependent on sport or goal, the associative work will always be most specific to the task. For somebody who wants to get better at barbell squatting, a barbell squat will always be the associative work to the client. 
the autonomous work, this goes back to what you were saying was the internal versus external stability. Autonomous work will almost always be externally stabilized or will be trained at a far lesser intensity because it's autonomous to this person. It's something they can do with little to no neurological cause. Got it. So with the objective of pushing them higher up in the associative um, task. Yeah, to give them capacity on a physiological sense to, you know, adapt to more muscle fiber, to create better quality of muscle fiber, to allow them when they go to do that associative task, for those muscle fibers to actually react to the task given, right? And we're not just loading ligaments and tendons and joints forever. Now that musculature is working through adaptation when we move to associative. Very cool. And the other one we we, um, started talking about is what does it look like to train anti-rotation with respect to associative training for a squat, uh, no, autonomous training for a squat. Yeah, so we look at uh, autonomous training for a squat and anti-rotation, we can start to kind of see the force for the trees and movement selection. We can see the, uh, an exercise I love is the contralateral front foot elevated split squat. Well, if I look at anti-rotation and I want someone to get better at the squat, I'm not gonna give them you know, a side plank, I'm not gonna give them a Russian twist as the ab exercise, I'm going to give them a contralaterally loaded split squat because I'm going to be able to suggest either rotation and control through rotation or anti-rotation in the split squat, but I'm adapting to positions of hip and knee flexion as I challenge that anti-rotation. The other benefit of this is a dumbbell rack is infinitely long. And if somebody sat and trained from a 20 pound dumbbell to a 200 pound dumbbell in a front foot elevated split squat, we would see dramatic increases in their ability to to express function and strength in the barbell squat. Number one, strengthening through hip and knee flexion, but two, there's a large anti-rotational dynamic to that movement. Um, so in this person's barbell squat workout, exercise A may be barbell squat, exercise C or E may be the front foot elevated split squat with a contralateral load. Exercise B might be a half kneeling or seated uh, lat pull down. We might go half kneeling, ipsilateral lat pull down. We're starting to derive function from uh, adduction and anti-lateral flexion. We're starting to find depression in that lat and most likely upward rotation of the scapula. Now, when we look at people with bar- bad barbell squat mechanics, we often see more horizontal vectors of force being applied to the barbell in which we want to go vertical. So now we're seeing a more so upwardly rotated scapula, more vertical elbow beneath the bar. Now, this should all be acknowledged that this is with the objective of being a better squatter. So this is this is where I, my brain starts to explode when it comes to programming. And as you spoke about programming is like the bane of my existence. When you start to know too much, it becomes, and that's that's an ignorant statement, but when you start to know more, it just becomes such an uh, overwhelming test because you sit down and you go, okay, well, who am I writing this for? What are the limitations? What is their main objective? And if you don't know that, it becomes uh, almost impossible. And when you do know that, it's still incredibly difficult to think through, you know, how are they going to manifest over the next week? How is this exercise going to influence this? And, you know, there has to be such an extensive movement assessment and, uh, you know, obviously goal assessment. Um, so many variables and programming to me is uh, one of the most complex things. And I think when it comes to a high level athlete, the value is, is uh, incredibly high. But when it comes to an average person, let's talk about that. Average listener to this podcast, let's say, you know, fitness is their top priority in their life. Maybe family and fitness and finances are their top priority. Uh, but fitness is certainly up there. How much should they be looking into all these intricacies of programming? 
I think, I think it's, I think programming is underrated in its value, even for the gen pop client. And even more so, I think valuable for the gen pop client in attenuating fatigue, right? Like there's a huge principle, which is skill versus will. And oftentimes when we look at people that quit, when we look at people that are maybe not necessarily the best employees within our companies, I think the first conversation we need to have is number one, facts versus stories. Like what are the stories that we tell ourselves and what are the facts of the situation? But two, more importantly, is skill versus will. Is is this person's inability to have motivation or discipline to complete a task based on some inherent quality about them making them not a good person? Not usually. I like to think most people are great. It's usually lesser it's usually, you know, lesser money in the skill bank account. And the greater skill we have at something, the more willful and motivated we are to partake in that task. I think of this, and I think this is very relatable to probably people who listen to this podcast when it comes to fitness and nutrition, is cooking. People who aren't skilled in the kitchen make far fewer good nutritional choices. When you're skilled in the kitchen, you enjoy being in there, you understand ingredients and how they can be utilized transferably from unhealthy to healthy dishes, you're more apt to spend the time in the kitchen to prep your meals to eat good things. Now, if I don't like cooking and I have no idea how to turn the stove on and last time I touched the stove, I burned my hand, chances are I'm going to go to Uber Eats and just order anything to satiate myself because I don't have the skill in the kitchen. Now, as we uptake these categories of skill in all aspects of life and in the weight room, we see a greater ability to have motivation or will to continue to do it. You and I are very good at working out. You and I are both motivated to work out because we enjoy it, because we're good at it. When you go into the gym, you can get a pump. It's going to happen. When I go into the gym, I can do as many pull-ups and the heaviest squat I want to do because I have the skill on any given day to do those things. So even on a day where I may not do the most economical or intelligent training, I have the motivation to go in because there's something in there that I'm so good at. I know I'll get the dopamine release that I did it really well. That I took my shirt off on Instagram, did 10 pull-ups in my home, right there. Because there's a skill surrounding that. Now, every time I went into the gym, I was relearning something and I didn't quite get it. And you know, the leg press didn't give me a quad pop and the back squat I couldn't add weight to. Well, it's my skill in those two pursuits that, that reduced my motivation to do it. It wasn't some inherent quality making me a lesser person than that, for that person. Man, so much value in that. I think. There's something to be said there for anyone out there who's a personal trainer or a coach in the way that you sell personal training. One of the ways we do it at the gym, we don't allow people to work with us unless they're committed to five times a week for the first four weeks for that exact reason, because I, I strongly believe in the empowerment of understanding what you're doing, being able to do it on your own with with some degree of competency and come in and actually get that dopamine. It can be so disheartening to come in the gym and feel like you're just not doing it right. So, you know, trainers out there, coaches out there, when you're when you're suggesting how many sessions a week to somebody always front loading and like I, anyone who I bring in to my, my coaching or anyone who I bring to the gym is always this intentional uh, high frequency training for the first four to six weeks so we can make sure the skill is where it needs to be. Is that typically how you suggest starting programming um, when skill acquisition is the primary goal? A hundred percent. If someone, if someone again lies in that, in really that skill acquisition model and, and when I trained in person and now I, as I train remotely, there's no program that's less than five days a week. Um, there are programs that are five plus, you know, one day of even supplemental work that could fall into more your category of uh, like stress management and even breath work that'll be included with uh, beginner level clients. And and it's really only a few clients that exist 
you know, at the, the top end of training age or at the top end of their sport that will see less than four days of work included in their program. Um, but those are people that have definitely adapted to the skill necessary for their sport. And then probably now due to the intensity in which they train need to back off. But I would say 85% of the programs I write are a minimum of five days. So people who are high level athletes, does that often or sometimes necessitate less frequency or are you still doing the adjunct kind of, um, autonomous days to ensure skill uh, retention. Yeah. So I think that's kind of where the play on words comes from. Like you see three days, maybe in the weight room of a high level athlete, but there's probably at least two to three adjunct days of a separate skill being acquired elsewhere. Right. Um, like we could see this in the high level athlete that also plays a sport. They may train in the weight room three days a week. They're probably playing their sport to an equivalent or, um, even greater amount. And then for any other athlete, um, like I, I work with a lot with tactical as well. And, you know, some of those guys might train three days a week in the weight room, but chances are seven days a week, they're under a lot of stress. So they're doing something else associated with the skill. Um, same goes for, you know, even higher level uh, bodybuilding athletes, right? Like even if they only hit three days in a week, there's something happening outside of that that's probably integrating a great demand on stress to them, uh, where they're acquiring a skill that could be for that person stress management so that could be yoga that could be walking that could be doing yeah. logic-based puzzles is a huge cognitive skill acquisition tool hmm. um like yeah it's what i call my parasympathetic days i write parasympathetic days into all my workouts is like you must do this here uh, because it's just such a difference maker in accelerating the recovery curve right it's you know sitting on your butt and not doing anything is so different than consciously and intentionally uh, recharging your batteries, right? Leaving your cell phone on the counter isn't going to allow it to recharge. Just, you know, simply learn some some simple interventions to plug it in. So um, we kind of went off track there and started talking about programming. I want to wrap up with maybe covering anything in with respect to your skill acquisition course that we didn't go through um, that you think would be very, very important for people to start to understand, to know what you're going to be teaching in the course and uh, maybe what they need to understand with respect to skill acquisition. Yeah, so the skill acquisition course really starts from, from day one, like day one, day, day one, week one of the course is an introduction to what we've spoken in depth of here, which is the Fitz-Posner skill acquisition model, understanding the cognitive, associative, and autonomous phases, and the terminology surrounding it, right? Like we're going to say perturbation, we're going to say autonomy, we're going to say sympathetic and parasympathetic and neurological and physiological, and, and from day one of learning any skill, there is a cognitive requirement, which is at first the base base or first principles of the knowledge of what it is. So week one, we dive right into the, the base level of what is skill acquisition and how does one acquire motor unit learning. Um, week two of the course, we go right into what we spoke about, which is uh, the schema theory and understanding a schema as cognition and perception and how to and how to create graded exposure and what is graded exposure to a task. So in the weight room specifically, how can we create graded exposure through deflection, hip extension, um, protraction, and retraction mechanics, and depression and elevation mechanics. And seeing those often tied to commonalities in movement that'll be programmed is how can we adapt the schema theory of cognition and perception. Uh, week three, we go into the idea of dual task learning and, and the economy of programming, what we spoke about. How do you attenuate for fatigue and adaptive decay over the, a week of walk and a year of training in its entirety in terms of looking at adaptive decay and really how can I balance the books on how much I'm asking of someone neurologically and how can I back end or continue in a physiological sense 
while that neurological adaptation recovers. One thing that comes up um, maybe as a reference point for you to look into is my last podcast I did with Dr. Andrew Huberman. I don't know if you know who he is, but he speaks about, you know, people often talk about focus and say, you know, you can only focus on one thing at a time. And his, you know, being one of the top neuroscientists in the world has validated that you can actually be in two places at one time, meaning you can have two points of focus. Um, and this may be a useful addition to your course that this reality that most people are you know, living outside of their body. So they're kind of focused on, or maybe they're in their head, uh, which in their head would then be in the, obviously in the future or in the past. So you're either um, stressing about the future or you're, you're stressing about the past. Um, so bringing people into the here and now, and I always say like, be present and be inside of your body. Like the, those two points of reference for me have been a successful uh, adjunct model, like adding it to their to the repertoire of understanding where I want you to be present. So most people go in the gym and they're worried about their lunch or they're worried about their, their spouse or their children or their finances. So giving people the tools, at least the awareness and then the tools to step into being in the present, being focused on the task at hand and being present inside of my body, I think will accelerate the, the skill acquisition curve. Um, just simply, as you say, step one, it needs to be awareness. But the fact, as soon as I learned that you can be in two places at once, meaning I could certainly be in my mind, being conscious of what I'm doing, and then in my body, feeling what I'm doing. So this embodiment of the task is uh, was a useful addition to my understanding of teaching people this stuff. Yeah, 100%. I think one of the things we talk about in the course currently um, that speaks somewhat to that is the constraints model, right? Is creating, um, you know, these environmental and influential constraints on someone to allow them to at first be one place and then adapt to, you know, like you'd said, you know, being more place, more than one place at once and, and understanding like, how can we create constraints to the environment, constraints to the lifter that create graded exposure to, you know, being more present in a lift, whether that be, you know, the two dowels and the external stability, allowing them to move extremely slow and say concentric phases of movement, where oftentimes in a back squat, eccentric phase you go slower in and the concentric phase you try to get the hell out of there and that's never going to improve your ability to be in the concentric phase of the squat or you know those isometrics in terms of overcoming it. isometrics is creating you know a constraint to the time and the space of the movement allowing someone to then become more present in those weak positions of a lift so the constraints model is something we dig deep into when it comes to, to dual task learning or being more present to be able to isolate the autonomy from like the associative act very cool. Sorry, I interrupted you. I believe you're on week four. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, and then from week four to six, we go through uh, the constraints model itself and in, in implementing environmental constraint. Uh, week five, we get into a lot of the modality and programming considerations, uh, considerations that you and I spoke about. Um, and then week seven, week six, we wrap up with a deep dive into um, cognitive, associative, and autonomous in terms of how it's um, qualified and how it's quantified in a workout. Man, um, I'm massively interested. I will be attending this course. Yeah. Uh, anyone out there who's a trainer or very interested in understanding how to develop great workouts and ultimately how to improve skill, my brain goes to understanding this for children as well. I know a lot of the listeners are parents because I talk about parent, uh, parenting all the time. So um, anyone, I think there's there's certainly value for that as well. Uh, where do they find more about the course, Killian? Uh, yeah, so they can go to uh, pre-script.com slash skill-acquisition. Or if you just go to pre-script, pre-script.com, Go to the courses page. There'll be a skill acquisition uh, page that you can go to for more details. Uh, as well as if you do have Instagram, uh, I seem to live and die on Instagram. So Killian.Hamilton, feel free, honestly, to send me a message. And I'm 
more than happy to answer any further questions and talk more about this. This is what I do all day long. Yeah, and uh, when Killian started telling me about this course, I was massively excited. One, because his brain is needs to be shared with the world, and because this topic is certainly underexplored. So, Killian, um, you know, massive gratitude for you, man. And uh, I know the the sky is the limit for this course and for you. And I'm super grateful for your time, man. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much, man. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, where we focus on targeting our message to help you and your family and your loved ones live your greatest life in a body you love. Like you, I struggle. I've got children, I've got family, I've got businesses, and getting in the gym is not always the easiest thing. So when we do get in the gym, we want to make the most of it. And that's a big piece of what I teach here. But we also want to make the most of all those other things outside the gym that matter, right? There's a lot of information out there that is... um, noise ultimately right there's a lot of people trying to get your attention talking about complete bs everybody's looking for motivation motivation is not what you need right you need a strategy you need information not motivation then you need execution right you need to take uh, action on these things that you learn and that's why we're here to give you valuable information that you can apply to living your greatest life right now so killian today talks a lot about programming and this piece of skill acquisition If you were to spend the next four weeks, maybe eight weeks, on all the things we talked about in this podcast, your body would change more in the next 12 months than it has in the last 12 years. And I say that with an incredibly high degree of confidence because I've done it and I continue to do it with a huge number of people that entered my world. This is my secret, right? If you talk about what what is my secret weapon in getting exponential or exceptional results with people, it's this, is I spend the first two to three months focusing on acquisition. That's it. And then from there, you've reached this this autonomous phase uh, or this autonomic reality. Like, I just understand what to do. I've reached unconscious competence and I can do it. And that is when results really start to flow. So I suggest you guys all start applying all this information. If you want some help from me, um, you can head over to muscleintelligence.com and pick up one of our programs because we teach all of this stuff. We've got an awesome new site coming to you really soon and an app. Or you can head over to um, Instagram and connect with Killian because he's an absolute wealth of information as well. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by Blue Box. Head over to bluebox.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash muscle gets you up double 50% off. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.